Principle is a very venture capital term. Y'all ready? Gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Raj Nation Innovations Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, aka the Raj Nation. I am your show's host, the founder of Raj Nation Innovation, as well as a hip hop artist and a yoga instructor. Above all else, I am a storyteller. And I am joined by my co host, Victoria Cohen. Victoria is the voice behind the blog almondsandasana.com. She is a fellow yogi and a community activist focused on helping you make lifestyle choices that positively impact you and the people you serve. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. Is real talk with real people doing real big things to uncover the real side of success. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation if you are not a member already. Join our tribe by going to discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of the show, getting a notification in your inbox every single Monday when we launch a new episode. You'll also get my stories, advice, and tips throughout the month on how you as a startup can make your pitch a performance. All right, let's dive in now to our conversation on today's episode of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome, everybody, to Discover Your Inner Awesome. Today on the show, we have Chris Helm joining us. Chris is a principal and venture capitalist with Kinetic Ventures, a venture capital group based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Chris, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Rajiv. We are excited to have you on the show today. Now, we're, our topic today is what is the future of venture capital? I think we would be remiss if we talked about the future without talking about the past, though, and specifically for a topic that you're so passionate about, which is how is the investment landscape cha- changing? It's really important for everyone to know what shapes your opinion, what experiences have you had that give you this belief of how the, the landscape is changing. So let's dial it back to your early days. You don't really have a hometown, quote unquote. You moved a bunch of times growing up. Can you talk through basically like your early early life growing up and, and sort of how you were bouncing around all over the place? Yeah, definitely. It's my wife's favorite topic since it is what comes up at most dinner parties. So. <laughs> Uh, happy to talk, talk about it. Uh, so I, I moved 12 times before I was 18 and kind of bounced around the U.S. and grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, but uh, moved when I was a freshman in high school to Silicon Valley. And my dad worked for a few startups during the dot-com boom and ran technology for eBay. And so it was really interesting seeing kind of the emergence of venture capital there and kind of the boom of technology. And from there, I moved to Chicago. So uh, Chicago is where I'm based now. So I run the Chicago office for Kinetic Ventures. And from there, uh, moved to Cincinnati when I was a senior in high school. So I think you mentioned um, that you lived outside of the U.S. a little bit growing up. Where did, where did you live? 
I lived in Vienna, and uh, I grew up when I when I was young. I was in Belgium, so Brussels. Do you remember a whole lot of that? Was that like a very different experience, I imagine, than being in Silicon Valley or in Memphis? Or it just seems like a lot. Like it'd be very different culturally in all of those places. Yes, yeah, so the probably the biggest culture shock was moving from Memphis to California. Mm-hmm. So you have a very conservative group of people in Memphis. Not much diversity. I think my school is 99% white. And then moving to Palo Alto, I think around 52% of the kids were of Asian descent. Mm-hmm. And so that was, especially when you're a teenager and uh, have not kind of had that experience, that was the most fascinating thing for me, uh, at least growing up and kind of shaped how I look at the world and investing. And I would imagine as well on top of that, you have you start you getting exposure to different backgrounds, different cultures. On top of that, you mentioned your father gets involved in the Silicon Valley startup scene. What was that like? It was yeah, it was interesting. He went from uh, a corporate job at FedEx to kind of a, a low salary, very high equity based compensation. And I didn't think about it much at the time, but now working with entrepreneurs and uh, people especially ones that aren't extremely well-funded. It it takes so much courage and uh, kind of explains just the the stress of the day-to-day and the hectic lifestyle that people live in this space. So it was really interesting to see. I didn't think about it much at the time, but looking back on it, uh, it's it's just a crazy world. And people that are willing to make that jump are extremely impressive. You said that he was at eBay amidst of a couple others. Do you remember, and you were probably pretty young still, or at least in high school, but do you remember having any conversations with your dad around, like, did he have any war stories for you from, you know, from being <laughs> around these, these high growth tech companies right at this, you know, this big, the, really the first, like, bubble of, our, of the modern era? Yeah, he has a lot. And he went through two failed startups before going to eBay and... Uh, I guess the the story that I remember most is while he was at eBay, he was interviewing at Google for the CIO role, uh, I think it was 12, 13 years ago. And uh, Sergey and uh, other CEO rolled in on Segways while (laughs) they were 10, 15 minutes late for the interview, rolled in on Segways, didn't look at them. very unlike any other interview process he's had. And that was kind of when he decided the, the startup scene there and the money flowing into it was just not worth it. Uh, people were becoming kind of desensitized mm-hmm. to everyday life. And that was ultimately when we moved to Chicago. As you start to get a little bit older, you end up attending college uh, at... Emory University. You then go into University of Cincinnati uh, and get a graduate degree there. Now, within the Cincinnati landscape, uh, it's almost like by default, you end up, a person in Cincinnati ends up working for a CPG company or a CPG affiliate, right? Uh, It sounds like you went down that same path, um, first interning at Kroger and then into Dunhumby, which was uh, a shopper marketing Analyst or an analysis company, which Victoria, you have a shopper marketing background. Yes, so I'm sure I worked you can chop with it up both with them. Kroger and Dunhumby. I used to work at Pepsi and, and okay. shopper marketing at the end, and so 
those names are very well known. <laughs> so, uh, so your time at Dunhumby then, uh, I, I feel like this kind of gives you your first almost like foray into how much data impacts decision making, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Dunhumby was Kroger's analytical arm and we looked at loyalty card data for uh, Kroger and a number of world leading retailers. I think we had access at one point to over a billion people in the world's information. So we were using that to influence pricing decisions, assortment, uh, sending them customized mailers for products that they just want to purchase. So it was really the leader uh, in using data to make decisions at retail. What do you think is, I guess, your big takeaway from your time there? Because you said, you know, using data to make decisions. So I guess, how, how did that impact your sort of respect for data? Yeah, I, I just, because it was my first job out of college, I assumed every industry and every company was using customer data and any sort of data to make their business better. Not just to be big brother and serve you things you don't want to see, which is what people are using data for. But I came out of that and started working in other sectors and realized no one's using any information. Even the the smartest people in the world that are running hedge funds, venture funds, uh, their own companies, they're not harnessing any information to make their business better. So it's crazy that the the forerunners in that space you know, were Kroger and Tesco in the UK, these hundred year old companies that you know they were the pioneers of it, which I think is extremely fascinating. Coming off of Dunhumby, you then actually enter your first t- experience as a founder, right? Um, how, how do you make that leap from Dunhumby into founding the Mint Capital Group? And can you explain a little bit about what Mint Capital Group was? Yeah, uh, I made the leap because my wife and I moved to Chicago. Uh, we've been working together for five years, had the same job, same managers, and she was just much better at the job than I was. And <laughs> so we moved to a regional office and there was about 20, 30 people, and I realized that I had to kind of find my own path. I just wasn't really excited about the job anymore. So uh, I went to school as a finance major and started looking for careers in finance, was looking at jobs in investment banking. And uh, one day I just decided I was going to start trading stocks. And uh, I didn't really, I mean, I'd always been a passive trader. I had uh, portfolios, but um, I spent about six months learning everything there is to know about day trading and building algorithms to try to predict stock success. And uh, the first year was extremely brutal. Um, <laughs> it was just, it was, it's a crazy world and the smartest people in the world even struggled to make a living at it. And uh, I ended up finding kind of my niche and the first year was learning the second uh, year third year was trading my own money personally and then managing portfolios for a couple uh, high net wealth individuals so when you got into this did you had you left your job at Kroger and you were doing this full-time or were you did you start by sort of doing this on the side uh, full-time so I just jumped into it and wow. went for it yeah it's not easy to start a business. It's also it's 
it's not definitely not easy to start a business that has to do with the world of trading, right? And then being responsible for other people's money like that. How did you how did you make that transition from you said you started out just trading on your own and then all of a sudden you were managing other people's money? Was it just like you said, hey, hey, friends of mine, I know how to do this for myself. Can I do it for you? Or was there a, a, a more thought out process than that? How, how did that happen? No, it's kind of just like that. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a network of people that you know were looking for ways to diversify their portfolio and had some cash on the side and I kind of took my performance to them with what I was doing and then modified my strategy for people based on comfort level. So I was primarily a short focus trader uh, trading biotech, tech, NASDAQ stocks. Not everyone's comfortable with the idea of shorting. So I had to kind of figure out and learn new spaces that were a little more conservative and longer term. How scary was that? Like when the first person or first couple of people were like, okay, trusting you with my money. And then you are just hoping you make the right decisions. I mean, I can't even imagine. Uh, it was terrifying. It was the most uncomfortable, stressful thing in the world. I would be, some nights I wouldn't go to sleep. Uh, some I'd wake up at 3 a.m. Because if you have certain access to the markets, you can trade anywhere from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I was I was just losing it. And I don't know how my wife was <laughs> kind of stuck with me through all that. But yeah, and that's, if trading my own money was, you know, was stressful. It was bad at times, but taking care of other people's money is the hardest thing, I think, to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would imagine when it's your own money, you just have to answer to yourself well, and your wife, but uh, <laughs> which I, it would probably be actually more scary. But uh, when it's other people's money, it's not it, it's almost like it, it's a double negative or a double doubly bad thing because it's like you messed up. You know, if, it, if it didn't go well, you messed up. You have to tell them about it and then you have to basically figure out a way to recoup that. Right. I literally yeah. have anxiety just like thinking about this. <laughs> this is definitely not the career path for me. No way. I wouldn't recommend it to most people. But, but it's interesting because that is, you know, no one really talks about it, but that's a lot what the startup investing landscape is like if you're the person who takes in an investor's money because now you have the responsibility of someone else's or some other group's wealth in your hands. Yep. And you have to make these decisions. You know, it might not be as pressure chamber, uh, like literally hour to hour as trading is, but you have to make the right strategic decisions. You have to do things that not only satisfy you, but satisfy the board, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and understand that you're dealing with other people's money. So you can't, you know, you can't... It, it, what I'm getting at is it's it's a huge responsibility, right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think, unfortunately, a lot of founders don't view it that way because venture money, at least now, is so easy to come by. And I mean, I can tell by meeting people how much they respect other people, their money, their time. And I just think given the a huge shift in capital towards venture capital that I think that's lost somewhere. 
So, and, and you kind of, you know it from both sides, right? So can you explain what you've seen, you know, what characteristics or what traits have you seen out of entrepreneurs who you feel like don't carry the respect you think they should versus the opposite, the entrepreneurs you feel confident that they, they understand the responsibility they're taking on? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really tough because you don't see it for some time. Like you, you won't see it until months three, four. So you can make an investment and think you kind of know the person, but it isn't until their, you know, their expenses balloon from 10,000 to 90,000 a month. And you're trying to figure out why. And they're just, they're kind of living like a king versus if it was their own money, they would probably be operating on $5,000. And you can do the same amount with I would say a tenth the money if you're just smart about how you allocate it. Yeah, it's being resourceful at the end of the day, and 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 it's it's I, I can see how it could happen, right? Because you get this, especially if you've been trying to raise money for a while, you get this influx of capital, and you're like, oh, I can finally breathe again. But how do you, you know, how does an entrepreneur temper that and realize that this is not you know, a bed of cash they can lay on now. And, they, <laughs> and I will say, at the, at the same time, you have to factor in that part of the reason they need this money is because their expenses are going to increase, right? Because they're going to mm-hmm. put more into product development. Maybe they need to hire people, whatever yeah. those items are. So how do you temper the, the fact that you know your expenses are going to increase while not um, not getting careless, I guess? Yeah, I, I really think it comes back to, and the companies we've seen in our portfolio and across the market that do really well are ones that are completely transparent and have very detailed monthly reporting, very detailed updates to investors, because those are the people that don't have anything to hide. You know, if you're really spending your money wisely and yeah, human capital is a huge one. Like you're going to have to, to really grow. You're going to have to spend a lot hiring good talent and Every company that's done extremely well has been extremely diligent in reporting and transparency. So I think is if you're doing everything the way you think you should, why would you not want to share that with all of your investors? You bring up a good question there, a good point rather, but I suppose like the counter to that is what if you don't have great news to share? Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, obviously, you still should be sharing that, but it's not easy to write an email that says, hey, we're missing our projections because in some cases you can be removed from the company you just that you founded right yeah not you can it depends on the terms of the the round and what you've given up to date but that's a good point and i think you know a lot of the companies we've seen that have gone under and not made it were ones that as soon as it turned bad they kind of clammed up and kept everything internal versus asking for help. And there, there's so many VCs that lead deals because they want to be actively involved and help you grow. And you know they clearly want to return at the end, but they have way, way more expertise and connections than you could ever dream. And so I think when it becomes hard, that's when you should start asking for more help or help if you haven't already, because you'd be amazed at what the network of VCs can do to turn your company around. 
Okay, so you so you start managing, or kind of taking it back again. So you start managing your money, you start managing other people's money. So then how did you kind of get into the position that you're in now with venture capital? Yeah, so we, uh, I was trading for about a year. Uh, we ended up moving back to Cincinnati. I was looking for office space and my friends had just started a venture capital business a couple of years ago and they had a really cool space in Covington and had some stars working for there. So I thought it'd be a cool, yeah, just vibe to work in. And so I worked there for two years. And uh, at the time, our managing partner had started a, a fund called Cherub Fund. And it was a fund for young men. Mini, mini tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, cherry or cherub? Cherub. Cher- cherub. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was a fund for... Uh, minority and women and young men that didn't meet that accredited investor threshold yet. And so it was kind of the the population of people that can't invest in venture capital or aren't investing. And so it was a tag along to Kinetic Ventures. And I, I ended up finding myself going to every pitch day they had, starting to learn term sheets, researching the industry. And I guess after two years, we moved on to our second fund and they needed someone in Chicago to run the office and data for them. So I jumped at the opportunity. Yeah. They were like, this guy's been hanging around long enough. Might as, <laughs> might as well. Get, a, get him <laughs> out get of him the office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So, so with kinetic ventures, uh, you know, that's where you are now. I think this is a good segue now into the sort of the larger topic for today, which is around the future of venture capital. You're doing things differently at Kinetic Ventures than most, if not all, other firms. Can you can you just give the overview of sort of the investment strategy and, and what Kinetic Ventures is all about? Yeah, so we are a data-driven venture capital fund in the simplest sense. So we, all of our decisions and all of our screening processes are completely automated and driven by algorithms. So. To get funding from us, you go to our website, you take a three-part screener uh, that covers a blend of financials, cultural questions, and some legal, just some some certain things that are specific to us. And if you pass that, those three different screeners, which only about 5% of companies do, then you move into the formal application process. So we, we only talk to 5% of the companies that are interested in getting funding from us. So how is that different from from how, how others are, are currently doing it? So everything's manual and intuition-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually the first call or two are associates or junior level people that you know come through all the companies and find the ones that are worth moving up the chain to the partners and starting due diligence. But our, our whole process is so much faster. So even last week, I talked to a startup Monday at 4 o'clock. We had agreed to give them a check Wednesday at 9 a.m. But I would assume that a lot of like outside of the way you guys are doing it, that a lot of it is also like, hey, I know this guy. You should meet him. And then it's kind of like relationship based of how things get started. But obviously, that's not necessarily the case for you guys, right? Yeah. So it's all... Coffees, phone calls, uh, the the amount of hours that goes into just finding a company is extremely intensive. And we're 
that's why we're we're trying to expand uh, we have offices in Cincinnati, Chicago, Pittsburgh. So we we only invest in active underfunded markets, and we don't invest on the coast. Uh, so there's 32 states that we'll invest in, and for us, it's all about pushing, getting to know the network of funds in certain cities because that's where the deal flow comes from. Mm-hmm. And so we have I think 75 funds that we interact with on a, a weekly basis. And are you guys like industry specific or no? No, so we're industry agnostic. Um, everything's data driven and there are certain shifts just like in the stock market. There's money flowing into certain sectors, out of sectors, into geographies. So a lot of venture capital is timing, whether that's finding the right geographic timing or finding the right sector timing. like. I think you know, one of the big areas in the next couple of years is going to be robotics and artificial intelligence in Pittsburgh. So if you're just investing in SaaS companies in Chicago, I think you're going to miss a huge wave of successful companies in the next couple of years. So we'll we'll move offices, we'll move anything, but we want to make sure we're broad enough to capture kind of the next wave of successful sectors or locations. I think what's really interesting about the fact that you're with Kinetic Ventures is it seems like it's this perfect almost uh, culmination of your personal and professional history. Because you talked about you, you know, spending a lot of time in Memphis, even though you bounced around a ton. Like in Memphis, you were exposed to pretty much everyone who looked just like you. And then yeah. you moved to Silicon Valley. And then, you, and then you know, most of the population of your high school is of Asian descent, which is you know, most of the people who don't look like you and you start to see Mm -hmm. what diversity can bring to the table. And then professionally, you have this long track record of working in and around and within data uh, and seeing how data influences decision making behavior uh, and results at the end of the day. So now really like what we have here with Kinetic Ventures, which I find interesting, is, as you mentioned earlier, using the data to drive the decision making and that's regardless of uh, or or rather it's without bias right and this is a conversation i had with a couple friends the other day where it was i think all of us who were talking were people of color now there was one there was it was either people of color and one uh Caucasian woman. So everyone was a quote unquote minority group in this conversation of the four of us talking. And the conversation largely stemmed around how if you're, I mean, in many cases, if you're a person of color, you don't get the same opportunity to start a business because what a lot of startups are able to do out of the gate is turn to the, you know, it's known as the family and friends network and get you know, anywhere from like 50,000 all the way to 500,000 or more put into their company to get it off the ground. But, you know, as one person said in that conversation, he's like, I have no rich uncles. I have no, I don't, you know, I don't have a rich mom or dad or, or aunt or anything like that. There's no family and friends network that exists for me. And that's, you know, that's a problem. So what I find interesting about the Kinetic Ventures approach is it's not about getting that, you know, um, getting the the friends and family network first. It's not about 
potentially being turned down because you don't look a certain way or, you know, you can't ham it up uh, in a coffee meeting like that, right? It's it's looking at, okay, what are the hard n- facts and numbers and statistics around your company and your industry? Yeah. And can we make a decision based off that, right? Yeah, that's, I, I think that's the most important part of, you know, conversations around what is the future of venture capital. And I think that's, it, it has to be, more data-driven, less intuition-based, because you know, just implementing this model. And our first fund, we had 33 companies, and 42% of those were um, founded by women or minority groups. And that is pretty much this depends on what publication you read, but of the people that apply for venture capital funding, between 40 and 45% fall in, into those groups. And so we pretty much hit the nail on the head by not not even trying. It was just removing human bias from the equation. And those were the results. And we love, and they're actually performing better, which is what the data says as well. So, you know, maybe in the future we put even more weighting there. Uh, it is a huge problem in the industry because only roughly, again, it's whatever publication you read, but only 6% of funding goes towards women and minorities. So, I mean, that has to change. And I'm excited to see the shift into women-only funds, minority-only funds. Uh, Backstage Capital was a fund that just launched, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And they're a $36 million fund investing in solely black women founders. So, I'm not saying, like, that's that's not what we do, but it's the industry needs these funds to start influencing change and getting to a point where it's equal opportunity. When we talk about this idea of the future, what comes to mind to, for me, specifically within the investment, the future of venture capital and, and investing in general is I, I look at, like you said, data. Um, I look at cryptocurrency and, and, and ICO offer, initial coin offerings having a big impact. Mm-hmm. And the third area I would say is crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding. Those are three pretty unique ways of raising money for your company. Uh, have you thought about sort of how each of those can impact a startup? And is there a convergence at any point of those three? That's a good question. I traded a lot of uh, cryptos and ICOs when I was trading, and I still trade a lot on the side. So I'm familiar with the space, and I'm interested to see how those do impact. I think the technology of a decentralized network is what's going to come out of that. And I think the media application we see is decentralizing ownership of companies and making that information public and easily accessible. Right now, it's just a bunch of legal documents and random Dropbox files of who owns what. And it's the craziest thing when you have $5 million funded in your company and you can't have a sophisticated way to kind of report ownership. Uh, so that's, I think that's how we'll see at least the crypto technology influence venture. Uh, Crowdfunding is another interesting topic. 
I think that might lose steam in the future because of the time frames associated with venture capital investing. People are so trained for immediate returns and you know, even when you look at the stock market, the average time of holdings has decreased to, uh, I've looked at this last year, I think it's three to four months down from seven to eight years a couple of decades ago. Uh, so once people see you know, the re returns in venture capital aren't immediate, but are seven, 10 years down the pipeline, I think that could deter people from going that route. Yeah, the, you make a good point because I think, <laughs> you know, the, the, and the idea of equity crowdfunding is literally like, you know, Victoria, you or I or anyone at home can see a company and say, oh, that looks really interesting. I want to invest in that company because I want to make money. But most people, I don't think, are aware that the way you make money on an investment in a company is, you know, 95 to 99 percent of the time is when that company gets acquired or goes public. You've got a while. You know, very. You know, sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's like you can do a, a profit share, but yeah, you got then, you got eight years generally in yeah. the U.S. <laughs> yeah, and then when you factor that, most people, especially. And I would say just culturally, as a society, we move more and more towards instant gratification on demand. It becomes harder to wrap your head around the fact that, you know, whether it's the $10 or the $1,000 that I put in today, A, may just be gone completely. Yeah. Or B, if I get the return. Probably going to have forgotten I even yeah, invested. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, 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 and perhaps that's not something that, you know, in the moment, you're not even thinking about it, so you don't even care that much, so you will put the money in. But, but Chris, you bring up a good point there that it's it's a long game that an investor knows, as an, you know, an accredited investor who has a history of this understands it's a long game, but I don't know if the average person sitting on the couch understands that. Yeah, especially when it's, on average, people invest 80 to 100 bucks. Like that, uh, even if you get a 10x return over eight years... <laughs> I, I think that's what that, I mean. Yeah. Like you really might yeah. forget about yeah. it by the time you. That, that might be actually back. a nice check, though. And yeah. randomly in eight years, I'll look at that. Eight bucks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Forget about that. Assuming they still have your correct email <laughs> yeah, and can right. tra track you down. Yeah, right. yeah. You know that's interesting. But we haven't seen really yet because crowd, equity crowdfunding is so, so new. Yeah. Is mm -hmm. what does the return end up looking like? Because, like you said, what if you, what if your personal information changes and you didn't update it with that, you know, database? Yeah, it's. I was thinking about this kind of before our call, and uh, that'll be interesting to see how it pans out. Because nothing against the companies that go through that process, because it's hugely valuable. But I'll be interested to see the returns in that space, because there are so many companies that apply for funding that you know maybe shouldn't. It's just a, a new avenue for them to get money, but maybe they're not at this place. Uh, product-wise or just experience-wise where they should be raising money. So I'm, I'm excited to see how it evolves. I'm sure it'll evolve to something uh, that can help founders. What's the one thing you would encourage or that you ask startups, and I don't mean like you know historically, but to the listeners of this show, what's the one thing that you ask an entrepreneur and a startup to consider as it relates to the future of venture capital? The main question is how much do you need help? And it's, I mean that in the sense of 
there are so many different types of venture capital companies, and the majority of them want to come in, take a board seat. They want to lead the round. They want to negotiate terms uh, because they they think they have the expertise in the space, and they in their head they if they were running your company, they could make it a billion dollar company, and so they're going to put their fingerprints and. Uh, pretty much change a lot so that you know, in their image. And while this is extremely valuable to people that need kind of that guidance and need that help, I would caution those that don't. And there are just so many other avenues for money. Like corporate venture capital arms are popping up all over the place. Um, more venture companies are not interested in taking ownership or, or sorry, uh, leading deals and taking a board seat, influencing the company. So I would just really think through how much help you need and what do you, just what do you need from the venture capital ecosystem? Before we wrap up, can you let our listeners know where they can find you, where they can learn more about Kinetic Ventures? Yeah, uh, so our website is kinetic.ventures, and that's kinetic, C-O-N-N-E-T-I-C. And uh, you can also email me at jelm, it's H-J-E-L-M, at kinetic.ventures. But if you're a startup and you're in need of funding, please go to our site. On our main page is the link to our screener. So take that and you'll get a decision in about six minutes of our interest. And if we're interested, then that's when we'll begin the kind of formal application process and we can write checks in as quickly as 24 hours. I'd say the average time is about two weeks. So I would encourage everyone to go there and apply. The way we wrap up every show is by going one by one and given the discussion from the day we give what we believe our respective answer is to the topic question. So we'll start with Victoria, then go to me, and Chris will close with you. So Victoria, the topic today, what is the future of venture capital? Two things that kind of stick out to me, obviously data, which we've talked so much about. So maybe things being more focused on um, the data, the way that you guys are doing it, as opposed to just sort of the relationships and the rapport that um, typically other venture capital uh, firms um sort of pick and choose who they're going to invest in. And then um, the second being, I guess, just like a focus on diversity and being more mindful of the fact that sort of like what you were talking about, Raj, that there are many groups of people who just don't have that same access to get started the way that, um, you know, some people do if you're already well-connected in terms of like your family and your friends and the network you already have that may invest in you. For me, what is the future of venture capital? Um, I look at it in two ways. So the data aspect, Chris, which you touched a lot on, is super important. And I think that's a step in the right direction, You know, removing the bias from the selection process. However, I don't think we'll see a wide sweeping change of the landscape until, and this is a quote I'm going to borrow, from that conversation I mentioned that I had with some friends, it was brought up then. I just don't remember who they were taking the quote from. Um, but the quote is, until the people who write the checks start to look different, the people getting the money won't look different. So that's to say uh, we need more. We need to figure out ways to get more women 
and minority groups in investment positions to help uh, flatten and even out the landscape overall. Chris, what's the future of venture capital? Uh, just, I mean, kind of what you guys touched on, I think it's less ego and more data. So uh, ego as in the venture capital companies running them. You can't assume you're the smartest person in the world and will you know, always have the answer. So I think the more you can use data to influence your decision making and remove that bias, then I think those will be the more successful venture capital funds long term. Chris Jelm, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people get to discover their inner awesome. While you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform it is you listen, whether that is iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the various other podcasting platforms in which you can find the show. For full show notes, references, and resources from this episode, you can grab it all at discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Also, check out our 100-plus episode archive while you're there. whole lot of awesome for you to dig into. That'll do it for this one. Thank you again to our guests for joining. For Victoria Cohen, I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today.